Eagles Entertainment. With the 15th pick in the NFL Draft, the Philadelphia Eagles select... You're listening to the Journey to the Draft podcast. Welcome to the Journey to the Draft podcast presented by LifeBrand. I'm your host, Fran Duffy, and we're going to have a fun show today. It's going to start with a three-round mock draft at the very top of the show in Draft Buzz as I chat with Ben Fennell to go through the Bleacher Report's latest mock draft. It was a three-rounder from their ensemble cast of evaluators and analysts. We're going to get into that right at the top of the show. After that, we're going to transition into our first edition this year in 2022 of our Blueprint segment where we're going to take an inside look at the Cleveland Browns and their kind of draft strategy. And the whole goal of this segment, we're going to try and do it almost on a weekly basis is to catch up with a someone that covers an, an opposing NFL team, a different NFL team, and just kind of give a peek behind the curtain into the aspect of, hey, every team approaches this draft process a little bit differently. Everybody's going to have their priorities and their types of players, some of the benchmarks that they're trying to hit, whether it's age or production or body type. You can go right down all down the list. There's a long laundry list uh, of potential factors at play. So we're going to try and get into what some of those things are for every NFL team. We're not going to be able to cover every NFL team between now and April's draft, but we'll cover a bunch of them, and we're going to do it right there in that segment. It's called The Blueprint. We're going to do it this week with Corey Kinnon, who does a great job covering the Browns uh, for uh, the OBR. We'll catch up with him in that segment. After that, we'll round it out with a good question on a potential trade scenario for the Eagles in our draft mailbag. We'll hit on that at the end of the show. As always, the best way to throw us your support, head on over to uh, our Apple Podcast page. You can head on over to Spotify or Stitch or wherever you listen. Leave us a rating. Leave us a comment. If you've got a question, a mock draft for us to break down, rankings you want us to kind of cipher through, whatever it is, you go leave it on that page wherever you listen. We will get to it here on an upcoming episode. That said, let's get this one rolling. I'm excited to start things off with Ben Fennel. It's time for Draft Buzz. Now it's time for Draft Buzz. All right, excited to start things off here with Draft Buzz. Let's uh, welcome in Ben Fennel. Ben, we've got a, a three-round mock draft from our buddies over at the Bleacher Report. Uh, Brandon Thorne, Brent Sebleski, Nate Tice, Derek Klass, and Corey Giddings, uh, that, th- that team of analysts have gotten together and they put, th- put out a three-round mock draft, a bunch of unique picks, a bunch of fun connections. Uh, really excited to dive into this one with you. Yeah, nearly 100 players and a really good collection of football minds and analysts that we've really uh, come to love and respect over the years. So it's a great little think tank of that group and nearly 100 picks here in three rounds. So let's dive in here, Fran. All right. Well, let's like I said, a bunch of unique selections here and you know player team connections that we haven't necessarily always seen. And I want to ask you uh, right off the top, biggest surprise. It could be a guy that's going a little bit higher than expected or vice versa or just a, a team and player that we don't often see uh, in these mock draft exercises. Well, the most surprising thing, Fran, was this was one of the first mock drafts I've seen where I felt like the first five picks are the top five players. And that was kind of my initial takeaway there, you know, coming with, uh, you know, Thibodeau at number two. You have Evan Neal at one, Carl Laftis at four, Hutchinson, and then Aki Aquanu to fill out your top five. I'm so happy Carl Aftis is in there in the top five. I think he's a top 10 player. If you want to take him in the top five, I'm okay with that. I think that's literally the best five players going in the first five spots. But my biggest surprise of this first round is probably Jordan Davis, all the way up to 10th overall to the New York Jets. I don't know if they think they're getting another Chris Jenkins in there for the the next 10 years like they had uh, before, but Jordan Davis is a guy that's kind of all over boards, all over mock drafts. Nobody really knows what type of team fit to put him in. Nobody knows what type of draft capital to spend on him. They know he's a big player. He's a strong player. He's a fun player. But where do you pull the trigger? And I've seen him everywhere. 10th is probably the highest I've seen him for him. 
Well, let me stay in the uh, the state of New Jersey uh, because just a couple of picks before the Jets took Jordan Davis, which I agree that is a, that is an interesting uh, slot there and discussion to be had uh, when it comes to Jordan Davis. Drake London, the wide receiver from USC, going seven overall to the New York Giants. Remember, they uh, wanted to spend or they wanted to draft Devontae Smith in the top ten a year ago. The Eagles jumped them uh, in selecting Devontae Smith. They traded down. They took Kadarius Tony. Uh, they gave Kenny Galladay uh, the big contract last offseason. So putting a, a lot of, of uh, eggs into the wide receiver basket. You still have Sterling Shepard there, obviously. So uh, a really interesting receiver group. But Drake London at seven. I got to think that this is the highest I've seen him. I don't know if you've seen him higher than seven overall. Um, obviously kind of another player that's all over the board in terms of uh, the, the thoughts and the opinions on Drake London. He's six foot five, 210 pounds. He's going to go up and, and win at the catch point. He did that at a very high level playing on the outside for USC this year. Was primarily a slot receiver, a big slot in, the, uh, in his career before. For this point, but uh, lined up to the far left of the formation, uh, and he was that guy on the outside. You know, we're going to throw up uh, a number of different uh, deep balls. We'll just hit him on slants and curls. Uh, a little bit of a limited route tree, but just allow him to go and be a ball winner. And we know, and Nate Tice uh, does the the wide receiver evals. He he definitely has a type. He definitely likes those. <laughs> he likes all those ball winners uh, on the perimeter. You know, and while this is being dubbed an Eagles draft with our three first round picks in the teens really doesn't get there until the Giants finish with their two picks in the top 10. So they took Iki Aquano at five and then Drake London at seven, adding more offensive firepower around Daniel Jones for the new head coach, Brian Dable. I got to imagine Giants fans adding a really good trench player and a really good weapon on the outside. I think they'd be happy with those two picks. Yeah, it would be uh, an interesting pair uh, for sure, adding those two guys. Uh, Let's get to those Eagles picks. We'll start 15 overall. First pick, Florida corner, Kair Elam. We have not talked too much about Elam, especially uh, in the first round. So I want to kind of get get into the blurb here uh, from Bleacher Report. Here's the entire thing, uh, this entire blurb. Other than the Super Bowl champion LA Rams, every other team in the league should be envious of how the Philadelphia Eagles are set up this offseason. The Eagles overcame their offensive limitations, found a new identity midseason, built around a talented young quarterback, and made the playoffs despite being in the midst of a semi-rebuild. Thanks to their wheeling and dealing last year, they're now set up with three first round picks to kick off their roster building plan into overdrive. They should start at corner, one of their biggest weaknesses. At six foot two and 196 pounds, Florida's Kair Elam would instantly add a different element to the Philadelphia secondary since Darius Slay, Avante Maddox, and Zach McPherson are all six foot or shorter. Uh, and here's the quote here. Uh, this one is from Corey Giddings, who does the DB write-ups there for Bleach Report. This pick is a great time for the Eagles to add length to their secondary, Giddings said. Though Maddox played well this past season as a nickel corner, he's small at five foot nine. Elam would give them a longer body who can match up against some of the bigger receivers in the NFC East. Steven Nelson is a pending free agent, making corner back an even bigger concern for the Eagles. So um, interesting. Uh, I, I do like the the validation there. I do like the, the explanation there from Corey uh, in terms of the, the Kyrie Elam fit. Uh, what are your thoughts on Kyrie Elam and uh, just how you kind of view him stepping into the next level? We don't necessarily need to get, get into how he fits in the, in the Eagles secondary, but uh, what are your thoughts on him overall? Well, he's a speedy, long corner with good press man ability and kind of a physical temperament to come up in the run and stick his nose in on ball carriers as well. Plays with a really kind of nasty demeanor. I think he'd be a great fit for our scheme and kind of taking that Steven Nelson role uh, opposite Darius Slay. I just don't know if I want to spend 15th overall draft capital on Kyrie Elam. And Fran, maybe it's a little bit of reflecting at the pecking order because one pick ahead of him was Ahmad Gardner. Three picks ahead of almost Derek Stingley. Yep. I don't know about your board, but my cornerback board, I have a huge gap 
between Stingley, Stingley Gardner and the rest of the group. So I just wouldn't feel great. If I saw Ma Gardner sitting there at 14, I might try to go to get him if it's just a one-spot move up. So while I like Kyer Elam and I like his fit, where are you willing to spend draft capital on these players is the other side of the conversation. Hmm. So Kyer Elam may be leapfrogging some other top-level corners like Andrew Booth, Trent McDuffie. Can you maybe get a second-round guy like a Kobe Bryant or even a Roger McCreary? This is the nature of the draft and the cat and mouse of it all. So really fun to look at where guys go and where they go in the pecking order of the other guys in their position group. All right, well, let's get to uh, the next pick, which is the very next selection here, 16th overall. Uh, this is the pick from the Indianapolis Colts. And the selection here from the Bleacher Report scouting department, Michigan pass rusher David Ojabo. Here is the blurb from BR. After snagging a corner at number 15, the Eagles make back-to-back investments at premium positions by taking Michigan edge rusher David Ojabo at number 16. Here is the quote from Derek Klassen. Derek Barnett is set to hit free agency, and Brandon Graham is coming off a season-ending Achilles injury at age 34. The Eagles need to add some fire off the edge. Though Ojabo may be a bit thinner than your usual type as listed at 250 pounds, he brings arguably the best speed and bend in this class. Ojabo will need to beef up a bit and hone in his run defense skills, but he should be an effective outside pass rusher right out of the gate. Those traits that Klassen discussed made Ojabo, this is is still from Bleacher Report, those traits that Klassen discussed make uh, Ojabo a wild card in this year's class. uh, His upside is immense because of the physical tools, but he's still a raw prospect since he didn't start playing football until his junior year of high school. Ojabo's fluidity uh, at the, uh, Ojabo's fluidity off the edge (laughs) should make him a consistent headache for opposing quarterbacks. He might not have received the same attention as teammate Aiden Hutchinson, but the 21-year-old has the natural gifts to develop into an elite pass rusher. So, Ben, uh, we've talked about David Ojabo. I thought they painted the whole picture there. He kind of talked about the strengths and talked about the weaknesses. And he's another player. We've already talked about a handful where I feel like the the opinion on Ojabo and and his value – is going to change and swing depending on who you talk to. Some people say, yeah, you're betting on the upside. You're betting on the come, what he could be in a couple of years. Others say, yeah, the guy's, you know, he's not quite ready yet uh, for some of the reasons that Derek mentioned there in that, in that piece. Yeah. You know, he's really a divisive player as well. And a guy that's been on a meteoric rise throughout this season, I think because of his rawness and his development and his kind of ascension into the player that he is today, and that's really the way kind of Brian Burns was picked apart too coming out where he was right in that, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, 16th overall, actually the same exact spot in the draft two years ago to the Carolina Panthers that people were wondering, is he ready to play on early downs? Is this just a third down pass rush specialist? We know he's quick footed. We know he's loose and bendy and has all these ways to get to the quarterback. But is he a good football player? And I think you really need to kind of dissect these guys and how you plan to use them earlier in their careers before they're fully ready to be every down players. I think Brian Burns went to a really interesting scheme there with Phil Snow, and they put him in positions to be successful on early downs. Now, Ojabo has some deficiencies until he becomes the player we hope he turns into. This is a don't tell me who he is tomorrow. Tell me who he can be in three years type of player. And you have to have that type of projectional thought uh, with some of these players. So. Don't expect him to play conventional 4-3 defensive end roles. Could he be the Gennard Avery-Sam type of role? Is he just a pass rush specialist early on? And when you kind of pull back the curtain a little bit, Fran, wrote down a lot of similar things I wrote down for Derek Barnett coming out of Tennessee. Hmm. A guy that liked to jump the snap, a high side rusher, loose, a lot of spin moves. But I didn't love the way he played off contact in the run game. 
And a lot of that stuff and those traits and that description really led into his last three, four years in the NFL. So a little bit of a buyer beware, but an exciting, exciting player. Yeah, it's an interesting discussion uh, whenever you're talking about David Ojabo. Let's get to uh, the 19th overall pick here. Uh, the next one, the Eagles third in the first round. Center, Tyler Linderbaum, popular name, uh, and we are going to talk about it once again here. And this is a blurb from Bleacher Report. Iowa's Tyler Linderbaum is simply too enticing for the Philadelphia Eagles to pass on at this point. The center prospect can be considered an elite talent, though his positional value and specific skill set may not be quite as attractive to all teams. For Philadelphia, the Remington Trophy winner is an ideal replacement for Jason Kelsey, who is contemplating retirement this offseason. Here's a quote from Brandon Thorne. A better fit may not, exi- may not exist between prospect and team than Linderbaum to Philadelphia, Thorne said. Linderbaum's value is diminished a bit as an undersized center-only prospect, but his trump card comes as a run blocker because he's special enough to still warrant high first-round consideration. Linderbaum is a compact wrecking ball in the run game with the quickness to pick up uh, or to pick off and dominate second-level targets. In Philly, he will have the luxury of being protected by bigger hulking guards and pass protection, just like Jason Kelsey, which will help mitigate his chief concern and maximize what he does well. Continuing the blurb here from Bleacher Report, Kelsey's possible return does not spoil this selection either. He turns 35 in November, and he's entering the last year of his contract. Besides, the Eagles have three first-round picks. They shouldn't pass on a top talent and great and a great fit simply because he may not become a full-time starter in year one. So, uh, to me, Ben, again, we've talked so much about Tyler Lindbaum almost weekly here in this segment because he's such a popular fit uh, for the Eagles, a popular t- uh, pick for analysts when you're trying to do these mock drafts. Um, but it's just good to be able to get Brandon and Thorne's perspective. And I love just how he said, look, it's not just about, oh, like plug him in. Jason Kelsey could retire. Uh, Tyler Unibon, plug him in. But also discussing, hey, like the knock on him is his size. Putting him in there with two big guards on either side of him, uh, that can help mitigate that a little bit. Yeah, it's an interesting fit there, uh, you know, to the Eagles. And remember, Linderbaum's only been playing on the offensive side for three years. He was a converted defensive lineman, and it's just crazy how immediately gifted and uh, naturally was. And he's getting better and better, which is a scary thought uh, out there. So sky's the limit for his potential. I actually kind of project a Dickerson, Sayomalu, Linderbaum kind of left guard, center, right guard in the future. I like Sayomalu as the center, the future Jason Kelsey with Linderbaum at one of the guard spots and Dickerson on the other side there. So I think Linderbaum strictly a center so far at Iowa, but I think he'd be more than okay with playing a guard spot too. Yeah, something uh, fun to watch there with Linderbaum. Certainly one of the more fun players to study uh, in this class. Now, uh, this is a three-round mock draft. And before we get to some of our other big takeaways from the rest of the the, the draft, I do want to hit on the the Eagles' two picks there in round two and round three. In round two at 51 overall, Baylor safety Jalen Petrie. And then in round three, 83 overall, Virginia Tech offensive lineman, the the left guard there, Lasitas Smith. Both these guys uh, were at the Senior Bowl. I'm going to tell you, Ben, I just studied Jalen Petrie again. And I studied him in the summer. And I think in my mind, I was like, all right, this is a safety who's played a lot in the box, a lot in the slot. I think he's probably more of a linebacker projection. And so I was looking at him more through that lens. And I I got colored too quickly, I feel like, um, and trying to kind of paint him in that box. And the more you watch him, the more you're like, yeah, like, number one, seeing him in Mobile and the way that he uh, operated in wide receiver DB one-on-one. It's like, all right, well, this guy can cover. He's not just uh, a linebacker convert. He was insanely productive when you look at, like, big plays, TFL, sacks, uh, forced fumbles. This guy was always around the football. So you love that. But this guy can play in space. He can play as a, as a, a big nickel corner. He can play as a safety. 
the more I watch, the more I'm like, yeah, like I was just way too low on Jalen Petrie coming into the season um, and just didn't get around to him until recently again. And he's a, he's a really fun player. Yeah, he was really productive at Baylor, Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year. Just plays all over the place. And you just assume he's 210 or 215. No, exactly. he's 5'10", 195. He plays yep. so much bigger than that size would suggest. I don't know if you want to say, is he a, you know, a Kenny Moore type of player? Hey, I thought Johnson. about Kenny Moore. Yeah, I thought about Kenny you know, Moore. This new wave of tough guy nickel is kind of what I call him, where you're thick, you got size, you'll stick your nose in like it's nobody's business. I don't think he's quite the athlete of a Buddha Baker. Hmm. But I yeah, think you're going to get that level of impact player, you know, in the perimeter, you know, in the alleys there, contributing to run support and just playing with his hair on fire. You know, the body type that is almost exactly similar to is a guy who came out, I want to say like 2012, uh, maybe 2011, uh, Micah Hyde, when he came out of Iowa, he was a corner uh, and then made the, con- the conversion uh, to safety later in his career. Um, I kind of wonder, like, could Jalen Petrie be a Micah Hyde? Hey, maybe he's a, a nickel, big nickel, sub-package player early and then becomes more accustomed to playing deep. He, he played a little bit as a two-high player, but definitely spent the majority of his reps uh, either in the slot or close to the line of scrimmage. So you'll need a little bit of developmental curve there uh, in terms of playing from depth. But uh, I just loved, I loved Petrie. He's a, a really, really fun player to study. Yeah. And he's another guy that's all over the place as far as draft capital. Yeah. You know, right. and some of these other next tier safeties, whether it's Petrie or Dax Hill, uh, and trying to figure out that kind of pecking order after Kyle Hamilton. It's been all over the place. I've seen him go in the middle of the first round. I've seen him slide into round three. Mm. I think the Bleacher Report guys kind of hedged the bets there and slid him right there in the middle yeah. of round two, which I think is a pretty comfortable landing spot. I think where Javon Holland went last year very early day two to the Miami Dolphins. I think that's going to be a big country for Dax Hill and Jalen Petrie. Well, let's get to uh, that third round pick, Lasita Smith from Virginia Tech. I thought he flashed. He had some good moments down there uh, at the Senior Bowl. Converted tight end, made the move to offensive line when he arrived there uh, in Blacksburg at Virginia Tech. Uh, 6'3", 321. He played as the the left guard next to Christian Darashaw, who was the first round pick for the Minnesota Vikings a year ago. Uh, decided to go back, and I, I actually talked to him in Mobile about it. I was like, yeah, like one of the things is I wanted to make sure that People saw that. Yeah, it wasn't just that I had a first round pick next to me that I can I can hold my own here uh, in terms of being a top prospect. And he's really intriguing. When you look at, look at the athleticism, he's super fast out of his stance. I don't know that he's a purely uh, powerful player, but he is a really violent player on contact. He's got really heavy hands. Uh, I, I just like the way he plays, too. This is another guy uh, who just always gets after. He plays with a consistent mean streak. Uh, and when you look at that athleticism paired with that, he's a he's a fun player to study. Yeah, he's played some left tackle as well, put on the Liberty yeah. tape this year, so he's got some versatility. And if maybe his tape didn't live up to par in, in 2021, he'll put on that 2020 tape with Khalil Herbert and block with Christian Darisaw, who was a first-round pick to the Vikings. They were blasting defensive linemen yeah. off the ball and giving Herbert some really good cutback lanes. Really, really physical player on the second level. He'd be a great pick and a great middle round developmental player to fill out your offensive line room, which this team seemingly has done year after year uh, under Howie Roseman and, and others. So uh, just kind of bring a big picture back to the entire first round uh, of this draft. We, we just finished the Super Bowl, obviously, between uh, two teams that added a key player in both cases. Uh, this was a quarterback, but this does not need to be a quarterback. What I'm going to ask you for in terms of the answer to this question, uh, this, this addition in the last couple of years helped push them over the top. Obviously I'm talking about Matthew Stafford, Joe Burrow, uh, but both being added to these teams, they end up uh, in the Super Bowl. which pick in this first round mock draft best has a chance to be like that, that cherry on top, that finishing piece to say, yep, we're going to push you over the top. Now you are an instant Super Bowl contender. Is there one that kind of stands out to you in that vein? 
Well, I'll give you two kind of narratives. Okay. The, the cherry on top finishing piece. This is all we need. Cause he's going to give us just two or three more seconds for him to hit Jamar chase down there is Trevor mm-hmm. Penning going to the Bengals, just adding a first round caliber offensive lineman to the room. That's the cherry on top. But Fran, I'm not sure the Bengals adding Joe Burrow was the cherry on top. That was the transformation. Mm. That was the major flip the script type of guy. Yep. And, and I think that could be Malik Willis to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Yeah. A team that had a pretty good roster in 2021 might've been, you know, a quarterback away from being a contending team on a weekly basis. So Malik Willis, I think, has a chance to really flip the narrative and the competitive nature of the Steelers. Could you imagine if you're a defender in the in the AFC North and the Steelers end up with Malik Willis and you're like, man, four games a year, we got to chase around Malik Willis and Lamar Jackson? Like, uh, that is just brutal. Uh, you make, make sure. And not, to, not to mention Joe Burrow out there, too. Well, yeah, dealing with Joe Burrow. But I mean, it's just like chasing around those two guys. Uh, yeah, Miles, Miles Garrett has his hands full, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I do like Trevor Penning uh, to Cincinnati, too, because one of the guys I wrote out for Trevor Penning, uh, ironically, Andrew Whitworth uh, as a potential comp. So Beautiful. Yep. Uh, I like that pick there. Um, for me, it was Andrew Booth uh, to Kansas City. We got the guy we've talked plenty about Andrew Booth, um, but him uh, having that kind of lockdown cover corner, uh, that versatility and that man heavy scheme there for Steve Spagnuolo, like that's a that's top shelf talent in a man cover scheme. You need those kind of guys and, and Booth would give them uh, to me like instant most talented corner on the roster uh, kind of feel in terms of being an outside presence uh, there in that defense. Um, all right. So that said, just general thoughts uh, on the, the way this draft unfolded going into round two, round three. Uh, just any takeaways looking at the rest of this mock for you? I have a lot of thoughts, and I love seeing three-round mock drafts from guys that are extremely credible, watch the tape, have very good football minds, and I really trust their opinions. So when they do the work, Fran, I'm going to read it and do the work on my end. And this isn't criticism. It's just observations from guys I really respect. So just looking at kind of how things played out in these nearly 100 picks, some interesting takeaways. How about Alec Pierce, wide receiver Cincinnati, the first wide receiver off the board in the second round Mm. wide receiver eight, which is crazy. Seven receivers going in the first round, not how a lot of people projected, but Alec Pierce, the first going off the board in in the second round, who we're expecting to be a really uh, good tester in Indianapolis and will be a riser throughout the process. But interesting to see him there. How about the first non combine guy drafted? That's Javon Hiley out of Coastal Carolina going the third round. A guy that a lot of people thought was one of the bigger snubs of the Indianapolis week. I really wish he could have gotten out there. Productive, productive season uh, catching passes from uh, Grayson McCall out there in that fun offense. Some other things just kind of taken away here. How about the corner pecking order, Fran? Not something I'm seeing very often. DK Kendrick, cornerback six. Martin Emerson, cornerback seven. Mm over guys like Roger McCreary, Kobe Bryant, some McCreary of the darlings of the draft season. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that's kind of interesting. Something tells me these guys really like the size and kind of physicality and uh, play profile of an Emerson and Kendrick, who are some big corners out there. Yeah, you're Elam going 15, yeah. Yep, no question. Uh, looking at some of the linebackers, same kind of thing. You know, you have Darian Beavers before some of the Georgia guys, you know, like uh, Quay Walker, who is in, on the board there, Channing Tindall. Um, even a guy like a Brad Smith from Penn State going ahead of some of those Georgia guys. Um, kind of interesting as well. And then some guys that just weren't on the three round. Okay. So where are they? Are they fourth round picks? Are they priority free agents? I would love to know where these guys <laughs> fall in the pecking order. So really quick, five quick ones. Okay. James Cook. No James Cook. Yep. 
Also, no James Cook in Dane's top 100 either. Is that the way things are trending? Interesting. I thought that's, he that's was... Good, that's position. That's interesting. Good. Well, I thought he was the premier pass-catching weapon, uh, you know, running back of the class yeah. here that somebody would take on day two. No Damone Clark, which mm. going back to that linebacker pecking order, I thought Damone Clark was a day two player all day long. I was surprised to see guys like Beavers and Brad Smith go before Damone Clark. Really want to see how Clark tests. Daxon Hill, Fran. Not on the board in the three rounds, which is really interesting. He's a guy that we've seen firmly in some first round mocks, pretty safely in round two, right in that jail and Petrie country, yep. but not in any of the first three rounds. Same thing with Kyler Gordon, yep. Washington corner playing opposite Trent McDuffie, a guy that's been firmly in some first rounds, nowhere in the, uh, the these three round mocks from the mm. guys out there. And the receiver that I thought was the most telling or the most uh, eye-popping, Jalen Tolbert. Our buddy Dane Brugler yeah. has very high, and then not in the three rounds from our buddies there at Bleacher Report. I think, uh, so. Darren, uh, DJ Darren Jeremiah has him in the top fifty. Uh, if I, if I correct, yeah, uh, he's uh, another one. So, and by all means, these are not criticisms; it's just observations. And when they put in the work, and these guys study the film and have great opinions, I'm going to put in the work and really dissect what they've done. So I love, you know, uh, that they put their work out there. It's risky to do mock drafts and big boards. Because people want to dissect them and pick them apart and call you dumb and all this. If they're just observations. I really respect their opinions and I love diving into the work they've done. Yeah, don't catch it. We all know that you're a hater. Uh, that's all. That's all. Well, well I'll save that for my burner accounts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I do real quick. Two fits I really like on day two. Uh, DeMarvin Leal at 54 to New England, which is not uh, a popular, you know, people, I would say DeMarvin Leal still squarely in most first round mock drafts. Uh, oftentimes in the top 15, top 17, top 20, uh, Leal all the way to 54 in New England. I love that fit. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. And then also getting to round three, uh, Tyler Smith, the Tulsa tackle at 94 to the Kansas City Chiefs. We know that we see the type of linemen the Chiefs have brought in. It doesn't always uh, mesh well with the way that they play, but a ton of like mauling physical offensive linemen. And Tyler Smith is that uh, in spades. I've said, uh, I know I've said to you in the past that uh, he is like the the day two version of Ike McQuanu. Mm-hmm. You missed on a Kwanu, uh, in the top 10, Tyler Smith, not a bad consolation prize once you get to day two. You know, and one of the names I saw here in round three that I feel like I need to go back and maybe recalibrate, okay. Michael Michael Clemens, Texas A&M, they have as a third round pick here in ahead of Nick Benito, ahead of Kingsley Anobare. Yep. These guys with some really good size off the edge, maybe can play some three tech in some sub packages. These Texas A&M guys, a lot of people think they're better pros than they were coached and developed mm-hmm. out there at college. So guys like Michael Clemens and DeMarvin Leal and some of those guys in the secondary, we'll see uh, where their stock ends up after Indy and their pro days. But Michael Clemens, definitely a guy I think I need to rewatch. Yeah, well, we, lo- we love enjoying those conversations when it uh, talks about different team fits and how- thought process behind the team building process. And we're going to continue that here uh, with our next segment. It's the Blueprint. Let's catch up with Corey Kinnon to talk about the Cleveland Browns. All 32 teams are always under construction. How are they being built? Let's check out the blueprint. Well, excited to welcome in for the first time here on the Journey of the Draft podcast for one of my favorite segments that we do throughout the calendar year, The Blueprint. I want to welcome in Corey Kinnon, who does a great job covering the Browns, uh, does some NFL draft content for the OBR, also covers the NFL for the analysts. Make sure you follow him on Twitter at Real Corey Kinnon. Corey, welcome to the show. Thank you. I mean, I'm thrilled to be here. Very excited. 
No, I, I'm really appreciative of you taking some time to really kind of dive into uh, the Cleveland Browns and their thought process. And as I said earlier in the show, the goal of this segment is to kind of present to fans that, you know, every team operates a little bit differently. Obviously, everybody's looking at uh, a lot of the same priorities, but everything can't be a priority for everybody, right? So everybody's going to have their certain types and uh, their goals, their restrictions on all of these players. And uh, when it comes to the team building process and just kind of hyper-focusing in on the draft when it comes to the Cleveland Browns, we are now two drafts into the Andrew Barry era there uh, in Cleveland. And um, I guess we'll kind of start with just three trends that stand out to you when you look at their draft history under Andrew Barry uh, that you think are important for people as they're kind of building out a mock draft and planning who are some players that they could target, especially early on, we can go one at a time. So you can just roll out the, the number one thing that stands out to you right off the top. Yeah. The first thing that stands out to me is that they have never drafted anybody over the age of 22 on draft day. Um, so that, that's a big thing. You'll see uh, the analytical guardrails. It's all over Brown's Twitter. People talk, talk about it all the time. Uh, if you are 23 years old, the day of the draft, you are likely off the Brown's board. That's just how it is. Um, so, I mean, we're talking about Jedrick Wills, 21, Grant Delpit, 21, Greg Newsom, 20, uh, Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa, 21. These are the, the first two round picks of the first two years. Um, and then even getting into to day two, day th- or day three even, uh, I mean, you're hitting 22, 21, 20. These guys aren't, these guys aren't 22 years old. So um, I think the mindset is, you know, by the time you get to year five, we're hoping that you are 27 and not 30, not 31. You know, some of these older players um, who are coming out. Um and, and so I think that's that's a huge part of, of the Browns aspect um, when, when they're looking at players is, is they do have an age guard. Row. Um, and so that would be number one for me. Interesting. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things, too, where um, and I'm glad you kind of broke it up and looking at day one and day two and then to day three, because while everybody does have uh, these certain parameters that they want to be able to operate operate in those lines are typically drawn in pencil. And once you get to day three, you get to those later rounds, especially it's around six, round seven. Sometimes you, you got to kind of uh, give a little room uh, in some of these areas. It'll be interesting to see as we get into a deeper sample size with Andrew Berry, how many uh, of these guardrails, uh, as we get to number two on your list, how many of them uh, start to get broken. But that age one, definitely a, definitely a big sticking point that we've yeah. seen through the first two years. What's number two for you? Yeah, so athletic profile matters. Yeah. Um, so this is one that kind of is, is drawn in pencil once you get to day three. Sure, yeah. Um, but we're talking day one, day two, guys. These are really good athletes. Even in a day three, like sometimes – on day three, a little bit, you're getting to more of maybe the, the average athletes. I'm thinking of like Jordan Elliott wasn't like a tremendous athlete out of Missouri. He went in the third round. Um, and then day three, you know, they started to take on some other things into consideration. So, I mean, they drafted Harrison Bryant out of Florida Atlantic. Harrison Bryant was tremendously productive, short arms, not super athletic. They took a chance on it. It's worked out this far. Um, Richard LeCount and Demetric Felton this past year also didn't test super well at the combine. Um, so those those day three guys do tend to that that line does tend to get drawn in pencil a little bit more. Uh, I mean, again, Richard LeCount um, was post motorcycle accident, um, and and there's been I, I think there's some other forms of in game metrics that they use to measure athleticism as well outside of of, of combine numbers that that we don't have access to that we're not privy to, um, as you know, content creators. So I think I remember hearing last year that Richard LeCount hit like a crazy high in speed, like in-game speed mark, um, playing for Georgia, even though he didn't test well at the combine. So, and that's the thing is like, um, so like you mentioned Jordan Elliott, uh, you mentioned Demetrius Felton, they were two guys. And I remember going into the combine a year ago at this time thinking like, yeah, they expect both these guys to test pretty well, especially Felton, right. Whether, uh, it was as a running back or as a receiver, like this guy was a dynamic player in the PAC 12, 
didn't test well. So you kind of think, all right, it, what, how much do the, the play speed numbers and the GPS data mm-hmm. uh, that teams get that we on the outside don't necessarily get uh, how much that comes into play once they get into day three? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, again, like the, the LeCount thing tested really high, like in those in-game um, GPS metrics. So um, just something to consider, but yep. but those day three, those athletic numbers tend to get a little blurry. All right. Well, let's get to uh, number three uh, on your list. Yeah. Number three is, and I think this is a growing trend in the NFL in general, um, but with uh, the Browns specifically, Andrew Barry specifically, is that passing the football and stopping the pass has been their priority in the draft. Um, so again, we're talking about offensive tackle, safety, cornerback, and a versatile will linebacker who can overhang, who can play in the nickel, who can give you some range over the top, um, have, have been the the players that, that they've drafted in those first two rounds. So again, offensive tackle, we're going to protect our quarterback so we can pass the football, you know, and then we're looking at um, safety corner, secondary help, obviously, and then um, the will linebacker is becoming one of the more important positions in, in football, the way that, you know, these mobile quarterbacks are coming into play um, the way that these tight ends are getting more and more athletic and asked to play in the slot at playing space. Um, having one of those versatile linebackers who can kind of bump out, who can, who can play and man over the top um, are becoming more and more important. And so um, I think they saw Jeremiah Usukoromoa sitting there in the second round and traded up and said, Hey, he's going to be an asset for us and stopping the pass. Well, let's get into uh, once the one thing that I think is really, really interesting. As we know, this is a people business, right? So uh, those relationships matter when you're dealing with college to the NFL, uh, obviously amongst teams uh, in the NFL. So I want to ask you for the for the decision makers when you look at uh, whether it's Andrew Berry, uh, members of of his personnel staff, or getting into the coaching staff. Are there any schools, any pro college programs that you look at and say like, all right, this is an important connection to kind of keep in mind uh, as you've seen this program kind of develop over the last couple of years? Um, the previous regime, yes. So like Alonzo Highsmith has a huge University of Miami connection and and they drafted a, a UM player every single year that, yep, that, right. that Alonzo Highsmith was there. Um, but this this front office, not really. I think they're just looking to find some some playmakers. Again, the LSU Cleveland Browns thing gets a little overblown because of right. OBJ, of, of Jarvis Landry, of Greedy Williams, Jacob Phillips, uh, Grant Delpit. Um, but really, Greedy Williams, OBJ, Landry, those were all John Dorsey guys. Those were all guys that John Dorsey brought in. Um, they did draft two LSU guys in 2019, or the 2020 draft, I'm sorry, in, in Delpit and in Phillips. Um, but that's just a year when LSU had a crazy amount of NFL production um, coming out of the draft. So I think it had more to do with, you know, finding football players who met those, those athletic, those production metrics. Um, and they thought would be good, good culture fits in Cleveland more than anything. Um, but again, we've seen guys, you know, Alabama, Missouri, Florida Atlantic, UCLA, Georgia, these guys are coming out of, 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 of pretty much any program that you can imagine. Ohio state, Cincinnati, like they, they've drafted guys from, from pretty, Pretty much anywhere they can find a football player they like, they'll, they'll sure. be willing to dive into. Yeah, it does seem like it's been heavily towards the the Power Five level, but uh, you, know, you mentioned a couple of the guys from the Group of Five competition. Um, you know, those guys have been really productive, but that's something I'll, I'll be keeping an eye on as well uh, moving forward into this draft. Uh, what are you kind of looking at a micro view now, looking at this team uh, as currently constructed? What do you view as the the three biggest needs for this team? Obviously, we still have free agency before we get to the draft, but as we sit here in mid February, yeah, the big one's wide receiver. Um, again, the Odell Beckham Jr. thing is very well documented. That did not work out at all. It didn't work out at all. Um, and so now you enter the off season with Jarvis Landry, who is due $16 million. And for, for all that Jarvis Landry is, is is a really good football player. His role is very niche. Like you have to get him to the the ball in space. You have to allow him to, to operate in space. Um, because he can't separate at a high level. He's not going to beat press man coverage. He's not a vertical threat. So 
this is going to be a really interesting offseason to see, do the Browns value Jarvis Landry at a $16 million mark? And if they don't, that pretty much leaves them with Donovan Peoples-Jones, a third-year former sixth-round pick, uh, and Anthony Schwartz, a third-round pick from last year. It's pretty much pretty much the only receivers on, on, on the roster if, if Jarvis is to, um, to get moved on from. Um, so wide receiver, absolutely the big one um, right off the bat. Um, and then the, the next two are, are both along the defensive trenches. So Edge, finding that guy opposite Miles Garrett has been a task. So I think they're going to try really hard to resign Jadavian Clowney. Um, but Jadavian Clowney rebuilt his 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 brand a little bit this year. He rebuilt his um, worth with the Browns this year. So uh, did he price himself out of, a, of an extension in Cleveland is, is a question that now we have to ask. Um, and if that's the case, we're right back to square one. Not only a guy opposite Miles, um, but that third guy off the bench, um, that first guy off the bench, I should say, that third edge rusher, that rotational guy. Um, I think they thought they had that too in Tack McKinley. Tack McKinley was another guy who came in uh, in a rotational role, looked really explosive, um, was rebuilding his, his worth as well. Um, but unfortunately, he popped his Achilles last week of the season. Um, so that, that's a guy who's probably not going to get a contract this coming year from anybody as he rehabs. Um, so now you're looking at, okay, we need two edges. We need a guy opposite Miles Garrett, and we need that first guy off the bench um, in a rotational role. That's well, a good year. Good year. Good year for that one to be going into. Oh, for that sure is, for, yeah. for, for the uh, for the 2022 class. Absolutely. And then again, that third one is interior defensive line. Yep. Um, another position, you know, th- this is a position they've kind of treated in a stopgap manner in the mm-hmm. Andrew Berry era so far. Um, so, you know, the first year it was, it was Sheldon Richardson. Um, and then they, they moved on from him. Uh, he was a, a carryover from, from the Dorsey era as well. But this year it was Malik Jackson on a one-year deal. And I thought, I think they, they thought they had, they had a long-term piece or at least a piece that they could count on into um, 2022 into Malik McDowell. Um, but that situation has unfortunately, um, unfolded in a, in a rather unfortunate situation for everybody to where he's, he's probably done playing football. Um, and so now you're left with Tommy Togiai, a fourth round rookie who played sparingly this year and Jordan Elliott entering his third season, um, who has yet to really solidify anything other than, you know, that maybe third, fourth defensive tackle off, off the bench in that rotational role. So, um, and then they have Sheldon Day, who, you know, for all he's worth, he was a practice squad guy. He played sparingly, produced pretty well when he did see the field. But those are really your only three defensive tackles you have entering 2022. And um, I don't think it's a surprise to say that none of those three guys would start on any 32 teams in the league. So um, you need two probably interior defensive line as well this offseason. So my follow-up to that, knowing that, all right, it's wide receiver, edge, defensive tackle is maybe the three prior, primary needs there. How do you feel that this team is, approaches the, the need versus best player available uh, mm-hmm. question, that, that topic that everybody always seems to discuss? And my, my big thing on that is, you know, teams are going to approach that at different stages of the team building process. My guess, you know, when you look at Andrew Barry year one versus, hey, we're, we feel like we're on the precipice now going into year three. We make the right moves. This is a team that could go on a deep run uh, that that might change a little bit. But I'm interested to kind of get your thoughts as you watch this team uh, very closely. Yeah, that's. I think a question that we still in Cleveland don't have a good answer to because fortunately for the Browns um, need and best player available has pretty much aligned over the past mm. few years. So heading into 2020, you know, their offensive tackles were Greg Robinson and Chris Hubbard. Uh, it just so happened that it was a deep tackle, tackle class with Andrew Thomas, with Jedrick Wills, Makai um, Becton and, and Tristan Wirfs. So that kind of aligned for them. Uh, last year, you know, Greedy Williams hadn't played a whole year, looked like some pretty significant nerve damage to his shoulder. So, you know, we need that 
that second corner to play opposite Denzel Ward. Just so happened it aligned with the class where Greg Newsom was available where they were picking. Um, and this year, it's kind of the same thing. You know, uh, they desperately need a wide receiver. Desperately need a wide receiver. And, and we have a class, you know, where they're picking 13. Might have a chance to get the first one off the board in a class with Garrett Wilson, Traylon Burks, um, Drake London, Chris Olave, Jamison Williams. So, like, we're... <sighs> It's hard to tell how they value that. I know there are some positions where they, they will say, hey, we're not taking that early. But um, how they value best player available in need has kind of aligned for them over the past two years. And it looks like going into the third year as well. Got it. So going into that now, just kind of put a ribbon on this conversation. Is there a player or two that's being mocked to the Browns right now uh, in the first round that you're like, yeah, like, all right, this checks a lot of the boxes. Feels really good that this would be a good fit for the Cleveland Browns in the first round of this draft. Yeah, it would be shocking if Garrett Wilson, Drake London, Traylon Burks, or Chris Olave were not a Cleveland Brown by the time that that the draft rolled around. I mean, they're sitting at 13 with with four guys who are productive, who are going to test well, um, who are all young. Um, and really, this NFL draft class of wide receivers is kind of pick your flavor. Um, I tend to think Olave might be in that tier two compared to London, Burks, Wilson. I do think Jamison Williams is probably not in the question at, at 13 anymore with the ACL tear. I do think they're probably going to be looking for um, an immediate producer, just the way their wide receiver room looks. Um, and modern medicine is progressing really well, especially with ACL injuries. But uh, I don't think fast enough for the Browns to consider him at 13. So I would be shocked if one of those three Wilson, London, Burks were not a Cleveland Brown. Interesting. So over one of the edges, if that was, do you feel like they had getting that first bite of the apple at the receiver position might be better than saying, get the, the fifth or sixth edge off the board and wait for that position later. Yeah. I mean, the edge class is super deep too. Right. So, um, you know, you're going to get a good player in the second round yep. if you wait to the second round there. So, all right. So then the, the last question I've got for you from this, uh, from this topic, kind of the, the other side of the coin, right? Is there a player or two that's being mocked to the Browns? You're like, man, like, I just don't see this as a fit. It, does, it doesn't necessarily make sense to me to pair this team with this player. Yeah, there's two. Okay. Um, so the big one is Jordan Davis out of Georgia. Um, as big of a need as defensive tackle is for the Browns, uh, Jordan Davis is off the field quite a bit. Like he, he is off the field quite a bit. And I just don't know. I don't think the Browns are going to value enough of that to spend the 13th overall pick on a defensive tackle who isn't really on the field when situation calls for pass rush. We can, we can say, you know, we see some good things as a pass rusher for him when he's on the field, when on those passing downs, but it's another thing to say, but Georgia took him off the field situationally. And so I think that's one player to, um, to probably Nix from the Browns. And another one is, is Devin Lloyd. Um, So people have a big tendency to mock, Mike linebackers to the Browns in the first round. Um, and it's just not going to happen. Um, they, they don't, they don't, they're not going to take a Mike linebacker in the first round. Um, not only that, but Devin Lloyd is also over that 22 year of age guardrail. So those are the two big ones that I see prevalently really Lloyd more than, than Davis that just like, that, that's not going to happen. If one of the linebackers, like, I, I have to look at Nicobe Dean's uh, right. age. If, if say like Nicobe Dean is 21, uh, you know, does that kind of fit? Or do you feel like, hey, that, that position in general, probably not going that direction? Uh, not going that direction with that Got position. Interesting. Um, I see, you know, in second round with a Will linebacker, yep. absolutely. The things that Will linebackers are asked to do in the NFL is, is absurd. So JOK to fit that role for a team that runs to, wants to run a lot of nickel, wants to run a lot of dime with Joe Woods, absolutely. But if you look at the way that Andrew Barry has handled the middle linebacker position over the first two years, he's signed one-year deals with vets as stopgaps. All he's asking their Mike linebackers to do are really sit hook curl and work downhill. 
Yep. That, that, that's pretty much all he's asking him to do um, with BJ Goodson two years ago and then Anthony Walker last year. Not only that, they really like Anthony, or I'm sorry, they really like Jacob Phillips still. Mm. He's been hurt a lot, but they still really like Jacob Phillips. And so I think they view Jacob Phillips as a potential guy to to play next to JOK, you know, in those those base and nickel situations. Um, so I just don't think they're they're gonna really invest heavily in Mike. Corey, any parting words uh, for just advice for anybody that's making a mock draft or picking for the Browns, anything that you haven't hit on? You're like, oh, make sure I sneak this here at the end. Yeah. Uh, don't be afraid to double dip on wide receiver in the top 100. Got it. Um, I really think they're, they're going to consider two receivers uh, within the first two days. So that would be one thing. Um, they're never going to turn down more secondary help as well. A cornerback is a position they just want more of. They just want as many corners as they can get. Um, and then continue to monitor the QB situation up to the draft. They're not going to take a QB day one. That's not going to happen. But if they say, you know, we couldn't find a better quarterback on the market, we're going to just have to run it back with Baker Mayfield. I think they're probably going to look that second, third round for, for maybe a guy to challenge. Um, so continue to monitor, monitor, or monitor the QB situation. Interesting. Well, something uh, certainly uh, interesting to watch there. Corey, thanks so much for joining us once again here uh, on the Journey to the Draft podcast. Everybody go make sure you follow Corey Kinnon at RealCoreyKinnon uh, on Twitter. Corey, thanks so much, man. Absolutely, Fran. Appreciate it. Now it's time to hear from you, the fans, in the Draft Mailbag. Great stuff from Corey. And again, we're going to try and do that blueprint segment on a weekly basis here uh, on the show. We probably won't get to it again until after the combine, but uh, always a fun segment. Always learn so much about the way other NFL teams operate uh, throughout that segment. Now, uh, let's get into a good question here from Matt B. in Raleigh. And before I get into the question, just a quick reminder, make sure you head on over to our Apple podcast page. This is the last question in the queue. So if you want to get featured on the next episode of the Journey of the Draft podcast, head on over to our Apple podcast page. Leave us a question there in the comment box, and we will answer it here on an upcoming episode. So here's the question from Matt B. in Raleigh, who left a five-star review and said, guys, I love the show and coverage. Thanks for all the great work. With Joe Burrow getting sack records uh, here this season, how realistic a trade target should they be for the Eagles? There have been a ton of mock drafts with Tyler Linderbaum going mid-first round, most of the time, to the Philadelphia Eagles. And figuring that the Bengals are going to be desperate to protect their franchise quarterback should the Eagles pass on Linderbaum and trade back to pick up additional draft capital. What do you think could be a realistic a call if this happens. So Matt, what do you think could be a realistic haul if this happens? So Matt, I would say there's a few different ways uh, to kind of approach this question. Number one, uh, we're getting ready to go into the combine, right? And believe it or not, that's when a lot of the, the trade talks, whether it's moving up and down draft day or, or dealing with stuff with free agents, trading veteran players, all that stuff. All of that, those starts, those talks have, if they haven't already started, they're going to pick up out in Indianapolis at the combine. So you ask, like, when does that kind of start? Right now uh, is, is the answer to that question. So every team is going to talk with every other team about all the different potential. You're really, you're just trying to gather information. Who's open to moving up? Who's open to moving down? Uh, those conversations will be going on here over the next few weeks and months leading up uh, to late April. That said, you look at the Cincinnati Bengals. They're picking 31. The, the Eagles are picking three times between 15 and 19. That's a pretty sizable move up. And what you would say is that's a, at least a second round pick and probably a little bit more. I think that that's unlike, I can't remember the last time someone made a move up that far uh, to take an offensive lineman. Obviously, you'll see it for a few picks, you know, maybe three, four selections uh, to be able to move up, um, especially for an offensive tackle. To, to move up with that kind of jump for a center, I think would probably be unprecedented. Uh, so I don't know that 31 to, to 19 or 31 to 16 uh, is, is necessarily realistic. Uh, that said, 
yeah, you're, you're going to have those conversations. And whether you know, if you're Cincinnati, you're going to put those feelers out. You're trying to get a sense of when all of these offensive linemen are going to go off the board. And that's something that those they're pro scouts. Uh, and again, they have a, a smaller scouting department than anybody in the NFL. But those scouts, they're going to try and, and put those feelers out. Duke Tobin, who is the, the, the general manager there in Cincinnati, they're, they're all trying to kind of put paint that picture. Where are these offensive linemen going to go off the board? Who's going to be available to us? Do we feel good about the value there late in round one with that 31st pick? If we don't, do we need to move up or do we need to place more priority on the free agent market? My guess is they'll probably do a little bit of double dipping there, get some veterans uh, and some youth into the picture there with that offensive line. But uh, it's, a, it's a really good question. My guess is uh, that that might be a little bit too steep of a jump, especially to move up for an interior offensive lineman. Like I said, I, I feel like that would be uh, an unprecedented move uh, for a team to make. But good question there um, from Mappy. And again, those trade talks, they uh, they all start this coming week. And we're going to be doing next week right here on the Journey to the Draft podcast, uh, a full combine preview. Both both episodes next week. We're going to do an offensive show on Monday uh, that will drop on Tuesday. And we're going to do a defensive show next Wednesday that will drop next Thursday. Make sure you're tuned in right here to the Journey to the Draft podcast presented by LifeBrand. Can't wait to get you ready for Indianapolis.